How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get Cox Internet powered by fiber with America's fastest download speeds. It's Internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply. Analysis by Eucalypt Speed Test Intelligence Data. Fixed median download speeds. USQ3 2023. Leading Ladies, a concert in celebration of Women's History Month featuring Kelsey Ballerini, Megan Trainer, Mel King, At the King's Theater in Brooklyn, New York on Wednesday, March 20th. Tickets are on sale now. You don't want to miss this amazing night of music dedicated to uplifting women's voices. With Kelsey Ballerini, Megan Trainer, L. King, and Christina Perry. Odyssey's Leading Ladies presented by Olay Body. Buy your tickets now at kingstheater.com. Welcome back to uh, Second Hour of Amplify. We're in open conversation. Our guest um, wasn't there when we called him tonight. Uh, we're praying that uh, nothing uh, wrong has happened or maybe some some misunderstanding somewhere. Nevertheless, he's written a book titled Everywhere You Look, Discovering the Church Right Where You You Are. Um, and um, when we left the first hour, we spoke about uh, we join what God is doing. Do you believe that uh, tomorrow, as you begin the day, you will be doing what it is God wants you to do, and you'll be doing what God is doing, in a, in a sense? Is it possible that everything we do that's good is we're doing because God is doing it and wants us to do it? Does God have his own dream? We have our dreams, and um, our would-be guests suggest that the most theologically profound question we can ask is, what do I truly want? What does God truly want me to do? He says that's the most theologically profound question in life. What does God want me to do? And that uh, to live is to be shaped um, by multiple stories competing for our deepest affections. And when you come down to it, you are what you love. You are what you love. Um, and in that in, from that perspective, let me uh, mixing his book with one of my books, uh, Faith and Imagination, um, Stories of Jesus: A Gospel of Faith and Imagination is a title, and uh, this this story is titled Jesus's Love for Joseph. Can you imagine what it was that how Jesus and Joseph experienced one another, how they worked together? We believe they were carpenters. Scripture would have us understand, and how did that mold them? The story of faith and imagination. Jesus was a grown man now, but he wept without shame at the bed of the man he called Father. Joseph stirred ever so slightly, and Mary wondered if he knew they were with him. Tears fell from Jesus' red and swollen face. He touched his father's feet, and then he got up, moved alongside the bed, knelt down, and kissed his father's face. My father, my father, he sobbed through the tears. I, I love you so much. 
You have been kind and gentle to me, truly an inspiration. Your hands are rough and worn from hard work, but I never heard you complain. And then, talking half to Mary and half to Joseph, he continued, while holding his father's hand. So rough from the hard work, but so gentle to those in need of your help. The man who needed something to support him when his leg could no longer hold the weight of his body, and the woman who needed a staff to guide her when her eyes could no longer show her the way. I resented having to pick up the wood shavings and carry them all to those who needed them to start a fire. I remember asking, if they need them so much, why don't they come to you? Why must we always go to them? I also remember you teaching me. It is very difficult for some people to ask. It is easier for them if you just give them what they need. Jesus was now crying so hard that he had to blow his nose. Mary placed her arms around her son's shoulders and said through her own tears, My son, my son, I don't know if he hears you. I cannot tell either, Mother. But our memories and tears can cleanse our hearts. Mary nodded in agreement and said, I remember how angry I got with you when you didn't want to deliver the bread I had baked for a hungry family. You said I was selfish, Mother. Mary smiled and said, We have learned much together, my son. We have learned much together. Then Mary's eyes turned toward Joseph, an old man now, a man who had been a father to her son and a husband to her, a man who made them a family. She thought back to the journey interrupted by her son's birth and how caring and concerned Joseph had been. Her heart was filled now with a strange mixture of joy and sorrow as Jesus bent down once again and kissed the face and hands of Joseph and said, Sleep, Father, sleep. I know in my heart there will be a special place for you in my Father's home when I return. Jesus looked at Mary and said, Mother, it will soon begin. You must be strong. Mary said, How can I? Mother, Jesus said, There is caring in your heart. And where there is caring, there is love. And if there is love, there is hope. You have taught me well, Mother. And now I must soon go to do my Father's work. You do not speak of Joseph's work, do you, my son? In many ways, yes, Jesus said. But in many ways, no. I have much to teach and much love to give in another manner. Story of faith and imagination. So, Jesus saw the continuation of his life in response to what Jesus, to what Joseph had taught him and the love with which Joseph had inspired him, but he said not only for for Joseph, 
is he going to do the work he had to do, but for another. He was already beginning to understand now that he soon must leave his mother, and he must do what it is that God wants him to do. And our, would, our guest who would have been on this evening, reading from the book everywhere you look, discovering the church right where you are, suggests that we have difficulty just staying focused on how to pursue God's dream and that we must pay attention to the Holy Spirit who is already at work. And that's where the whole concept, I believe, of divine providence comes in. Anyone who's listened to this program knows how often I've talked about divine providence in my life, hopefully talking about it in my life so that you can recognize it in your life to recognize there is a plan for your life and that God is a part of it and that God has been a part of it. And hopefully you'll be able to see that God is a part of it. And that happens as we become fully human. To become fully human then is to prepare ourselves and to become more deeply spiritual. Um, Because even though God has been rejected by many of us. I read in, in the book, we are still haunted by the sacred, that I, I need salvation from both my pride and my shame. To live without sin is to be fully human, is one of the things we would have been talking about, and that is because we belong to God and we belong to one another one another are the people that God has brought into our life. And that's why we can say we belong to one another. And so paying attention to what God is doing throughout our life and still having the capacity to be a part of it is overwhelming. Can you honestly believe that God wants you to be a part of his life and to do what God is doing in the world today? wanting to bring peace, wanting justice, wanting recognition of his presence, his love for us, overcoming all the divisions we have through racism. And so he suggests that we need the local church more than ever. More than ever, we need the local church, but the church is not about the quality of our gatherings. It's not just about uh, more people through preaching and singing, but rather that helping one person at a time is better than helping no one at all. And he writes, at the neighborhood level, we can simultaneously champion individual heroes and work hard to create just and equitable systems. And so instead of calling what is typically been called a church today, he believes we should use the word parish, and that has nothing to do with the fact that uh, Catholics refer to their churches as parishes. But he writes, at the everyday level, and I'm reading from the book, Everywhere You Look, at the everyday level in the parish... We get to see and feel and learn 
from the effects of our actions. We can't do that when our efforts are focused on the whole city. If we hope to engage in God's healing dream, we need an approach that simultaneously honors individual people, the systems we have created, and the dynamic relationship in which people influence systems and systems influence people. By naming the parish as a unit of change, we reclaim the parish as the literal ground where our practice faith becomes a powerful and even subversive organizing platform. The parish gives shape and definition to our imagination as we dream about real people and places and their very real stories. And so he's talking about the dynamic and the interplay that happens. And one of the examples that he gives and suggests that there is a profound difference between the Tower of Babel story and the Pentecost story. And I think we can see that. We almost understand that. And so when we engage, he suggests in the complex work of a parish, we will realize we are not in control, that we need all sorts of companions in this journey. Think about your life. All kinds of people have been a part of it, all kinds of teachers, different members of the family, <laughs> an extended family, and all kinds of people you've worked with, people you've met and played with. They've all brought something to our life that we don't go to church, he suggests. We are the church when we come together in the name of Christ, to do what Jesus has has taught us. And uh, I understand this uh, in a way that perhaps uh, most people don't, certainly uh, in the Catholic Church downtown Pittsburgh, that Ash Wednesday, he suggests, is the one day of the year when the invisible church becomes visible, and suggesting here that uh, the marking of, with ashes, the cross, on the forehead of people, and they, they're left on all day long, and you know who the Christians are. You might not know who they were were otherwise, but uh, we do then. And so um, he suggests that the questions for our culture-creating teams as we form this, this parish is, uh, who are we? What are we about? And how do we stay connected with teams different from us? He, he asks, what if instead of dividing, we used our differences to further clarify who we are and how we can uniformly contribute to God's hope for the place we share? We cannot do this without limitations. But, if we receive the gift of our geographic limitation, we can begin to work toward our identity as particular teams that stay connected in a growing web of belonging and relationship. Again, so he's saying, if we receive the gift of 
geographic limitation, boundaries that we have. We can begin to work toward our identity and stay connected in a growing web of belonging and relationship that we can, we can rely on one another more quickly, more effectively. He writes, if we don't embrace our unique calling in our unique context, I fear we will simply mirror our increasingly polarized culture rather than learning how to trust God that another way is possible. To trust God that another way is possible. And here's some of the underlines that uh, when I read a book, I, I sometimes bracket longer uh, sections that I want to uh, read from a book. Um, but I also underline um, w- w- sentences here and there. And here's part of the underlining in terms of what we've just been talking about. The feeling of belonging experienced by vilifying the other side will not sustain us. The moment that we categorize the moment, the moment that we categorize people as quote unquote other, we are playing into the hands of the enemy. And of course he's talking about Lucifer here. The grand challenge of our day, which is part of God's call, is to learn how to function as a team, even though we have astounding differences and in spite of all the profound forces pulling us apart. The game is to join in what God is doing in our parish. Therefore, we can all get after it. And continuing with my underlines, the church needs to recover what it means to be on the same team, to recover our vocation to be the body of Christ, concept we've already uh, talked about. It's hard to read the newspaper and not see our broader culture begging for a team of people to become the bridge builders, the peacemakers, the defenders of the image of God present in every single person, And you see the image of God in every single person. That, of course, is a true struggle. The old game of church competition won't allow for the kind of collaboration we need. When the church itself is the main thing, it usually means that every theological and cultural difference becomes a threat. At the neighborhood level, where the primary task is to discern God's dreams these deeply held theological and cultural differences can be worked out where we can feel the effects of, an, of our actions, saying that, yep, we do have differences, even theological ones, but we can work at them and find out so often that we're, we're saying the same thing in a different way or there's something more deeply to learn from what another person believes. Jesus clearly says that this will be how other people see and experience the love of God. We shouldn't try to cheapen it with uniformity. That is, all need to be the same if we are going to get along. The only way we can begin to model unity, not uniformity, is at the local level in our everyday lives. The old game is pretty simple. Argue 
abstract theological and political philosophies, if we are honest, this is where the splits begin. Insanity is sometimes described as doing the same thing over and over again and hoping for a different result. He writes, it's one thing to say that it's impossible and cannot be attempted. It's entirely different to say we will need to absolutely depend on God to have a chance of seeing this happen. And he believes it may take decades before this new concept of the church will happen. But he asked, what would happen if over the next few decades we collectively decided to pursue a new vision of becoming unified? I'm not talking about getting an impressive delegation to go to Rome, though that would be interesting. Welcome back to uh, final 20 minutes, a little more than 20 minutes of uh, Amplify. Um, we had uh, an, a guest who um, was unable to be with us this evening. He's written a book called Everywhere You Look, is the title of it. It's about uh, discovering the church right where, right where you are. And I've been mixing it together with uh, stories of Jesus, the gospel of faith and imagination, and uh, to make some of the points that he makes or to amplify on them, and uh, also some of my my own thoughts. And um, we've reached the point where he is now talking about um, a parish uh, would be the terms for a church setting with... Uh, with geography, a set geography, and uh, he's proposing growth from a small team of commitment to a larger team of relationships. And he writes about how the dream is that the entire church, all the followers of Christ in a given place, an established geographical area, would over time find unique ways to join together in God's dreams for that place, for that place. And, um, he also suggests that it's easy to allow fear to win the day. And if we're, if we're to be successful with whatever it is, however it is God might be leading us at this particular time, then uh, we need to trust God, not ourselves. And um, there are a lot of practical ways in which he suggests, but um, what are the reasons for hope? Huh. He writes that, believe it or not, when we are strolling through a forest, we are surrounded by a conversation between the trees. It's true. Just because we experience silence in the forest doesn't mean there's not a conversation taking place all around us. Seriously, with an exclamation point, seriously, he writes, when we walk in the woods, we might be amid a lively conversation. Emerging scientific studies suggest this to be true, but we can't listen closely enough to hear it. The conversation is largely happening through scent in the air and beneath our feet. While trees don't communicate quickly, they do release, quote, scent compounds that are specifically formulated for the task at hand. I, I could go on. He writes more and more here, but his point that he's really getting at here is that there's always more going on in life than 
than meets the eye and that trees are more, far more social than most of us were taught. And quote, just because we can't see or hear or smell something doesn't mean there isn't something profound happening. The key is to learn how to see it in new ways. It's difficult to see something if we aren't looking for it. It shouldn't surprise us that when we learn to ask new questions and explore in new ways, we'll be delightfully shocked at what we discover. There's, there's a new part. There's new understanding of how you should look at life, that there's more happening around us than we believe that even the trees are talking to, to uh, one another. Uh, and uh, you, we can say that about all of nature as we look at it. There's so much that we can learn from nature, what God has created, how he has created it, and, and why. And so he's saying if you, we're going to form this new parish, this new community in Christ, then we have to map our assets. We have to champion heroes. We have to ask more questions. And he says, just imagine how the t- tide could turn if we were known for our gratitude and curiosity instead of judgment and certainty. Just imagine how the tide could turn if we were known for our gratitude and curiosity, first of all, instead of the judgments we sometimes make against people and certainty. And there's so much to say about that. He, he writes about how the early church grew rapidly because they placed their hope in the firm belief that God was at work and would bring about the future. So, as you look to the future, there are many people who would like to take a shot at what's going to happen in the future with all that we're experiencing presently. But the early church grew rapidly because they placed their hope in the firm belief that God was at work and would bring about the future. Are you willing to do your part in bringing about that future? And let me, let me read from the book once again. He talks about uh, the movement ha- is very complex, and, but he believes that this connecting is already underway and it's going to strengthen the people who are coming together, that it won't grow through a slick advertising campaign, but from everyday people experimenting and sharing their stories. So he, he wants to say the church is not just about PR, We're going to hear stories from people who were in need and a group of people decided to help them. And so um, we have to believe that the future, our future, is in God's hands. And he writes, there is no short game in seeking to be the church in our everyday lives. It's all a long game, which means we need one another more than ever. Um, We need one another more than ever. So he writes then, brilliant ideas look more like a network. In fact, it's much closer to what is happening inside our brain. An idea is not a brand new thing that comes from nowhere, 
but rather the result of what happens when multiple thoughts converge. He has this quotation, A new idea is produced by a new network of neurons firing in sync with each other. It's a new configuration that never has been formed before. Close quote. When we connect with one another, with one another's community that's committed to their parish, we are creating an environment for innovation. By connecting our common practices within contrasting contexts, we are setting the stage for an unlimited number of new ideas. So he's looking to see what the church can be, not so much what it is, but certainly is saying the church is where we need to be, but we need to be listening to God. And so he writes again, I've never loved the phase outside the box as though new thoughts, images, or products magically appear apart from any contact system or structure. A far better way for us to think about innovation is to look at what is possible on the edge of the box. We are still connected to our real lives and the present systems and structures. So he's not asking us to destroy the church. We are still connected to our real lives and the present systems and structures, but we are leaning off the edge toward what is possible. When two faith communities haven't left their boxes, but each is on the edge of its box in order to connect to one another, new insights, ideas, encouragement will be produced. If we can get a few friends who are committed to joining God in their parish to meet up with another small team in a different neighborhood and they walk around their neighborhoods and share stories, we will sow the seeds of revolution. Reading about other communities, watching videos, and checking websites can be helpful, but nothing comes close to learning from others in their own context. Is a quote from Michael Polanyi. We can know more than we can tell. We can know more than we can tell. Close quote. By putting our bodies into new contexts, we learn to grow in ways we quite can't put into words. And so there is a there is an ancient uh, prayer. And these are my words now, not from the book. There's an ancient prayer now that states that um, every good thing you do, every good thing you say, every good thought you think vibrates on and on and on and never ceases. The evil remains only until it is overcome by good, and the good remains forever. The conclusion is always the same. Love is still the most powerful and still the most unknown energy of the world. Love cures people. We're talking a lot about the power of love tonight. God is love. So um, we certainly should not be surprised when Jesus teaches us that we should love our enemies and, and not hate them, that it's the only way to uh, change some people, while at the same time 
keeping our heart open to the love of God. Is there any, can you imagine any moment when you would want to close your heart to the love your mother gives you or your father or someone else, your wife? Can you imagine there would be any moment you would want to close your heart to the love of of God? So it's very difficult not to resent and want to extract vengeance against someone who is who has hurt us, for sure, but once we gain control of ourselves, get our initial emotions under control, Jesus really wants us to think about the usefulness of of getting even. What's what's to be attained by that if you've closed your heart to God in the giving of forgiveness? Still justice, justice for sure, but forgiveness. What does it really accomplish except to make us more like the very person we hate when indeed we know that our struggle for us is to become more like God, isn't it? And so, as you look at your life and reflect on it, isn't it most often suffering that kindles love? Uh, Isn't it loss that deepens our understanding of what other people are going through? And isn't it hurt that opens the eyes of the heart? So yes, our heart does have eyes. It can see better than we can see if we allow it to. The way we look at people can tell us so much about them. Some people have that ability because they see people through the heart. They understand life through the heart, the heart and the soul, and not just through the eyes or through our hatred because research indicates that people overcome by hatred, and we've seen it in the news in a lot of places there, talking about throughout the world right now, not only in the United States, um, but also in other parts, in Lebanon, for example. Um, The power to love and serve grows through pain. That I can often offer healing to others as I heal myself. And so imagine a world filled with destruction and hate. Is that that really what we want? It's been said that the holiest places on earth are where hatred has been changed into love. And if we think about it, some of the places that are our most favorite places that we like to go back to are places of love. And so it was uh, St. Augustine who taught that there is no greater invitation to love than loving first. And that's what a Christian is supposed to be, to love first. And if we, if we could bring together a community of people who truly believe that and practiced it, 
Wouldn't it be a wonderful community, a church, a parish, whatever we would want to want to call it, that we would love first? And so the followers of Jesus must take the first step to heal and also to be reconciled with those from whom they are separated. Why do we look for the ways we are different? I don't mean to say it's not important, but is it not much more important to build the foundation on the ways in which we are the same and believe the same and like the same, love the same? And so coming together as a church as Jesus has taught us, can be very difficult, even virtually impossible. But to do so, to do so must reflect the love of God to others. God will provide us with the love to do this. We don't need to go looking for it. The love is already there. It's in our heart. Simple truth is that if we cling to our bitterness or hatred, they will destroy us. Why is there so much problems in the world? Certainly, we need just to love a little bit more. And we will come to understand then the power of God's love for us. I'd like to read one more. I was was intended to be my closing remarks from the book titled, Everywhere you look, discovering the church right where you you are. And this is in a postscript titled um, Without Ceasing, and he introduces it with uh, a quote from the great theologian Karl Barth. To clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. To clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. So if you want to know what you can do about the coronavirus, racism, political hatred, understand the power of prayer. And he writes, the common thread in everything written in this book Everything hoped for, every challenge named, is the need for prayer. Nothing discussed here is possible if we are not dependent on God. When we pray, we put ourselves in the correct posture that says we can't control the outcomes we seek. When we pray, we've already sought to quote, wait on the Lord, close quote, because we have acknowledged we are powerless to bring about the transformation we seek. When we pray, we follow the lead of the earliest church, which put its patient trust in God despite overwhelming adversity. So he suggests and probably prays, may the posture 
and practice of prayer be in our listening, our speaking, our lamenting, our praising, our groaning without words for the dreams of God to emerge in the fabric of our lives. And when we pray, let's remember that we are not alone, that indeed God prays with us. Jesus prays with us. And so it's a gift to see what others are doing and to ask people for stories about how God has been at work in their lives. And three practices to listen to and learn from other community. Obviously, our guest-to-be says it's not exhaustive, but starting here is better than not starting at all. We simply cannot fathom what God can do with us when we learn how to be deeply interwoven into the lives of our neighborhood, the people all around us. So we need to overcome the blind spots which can do real harm. And our perspectives on race, class, gender, and sexuality necessarily arise then from our particular context and story, just as it's valuable and sometimes life-saving to have a blind spot pointed out while we're driving. The same is true in our everyday lives. We need one another to truly see. Don't forget then how precious life is and how powerful love is. Tell someone now that you love him or her. Pray for peace as if it depended on you alone. And come back next Sunday and amplify with us.